Welcome to the Deeper Into Movies podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder and lead creator of Deeper Into Movies. We're a pop-up cinema based in London and New York. Today on the podcast, I am joined by filmmaker, documentarian, Catherine Ferguson, about her incredible and powerful documentary about the life and career of Sinead O'Connor. I really got into Sinead O'Connor four years ago. I was really late to the game. I mentioned this in the podcast, but there's one performance that I saw that just blew me away. And then I went on a deep dive and I bought her biography. I was super excited about the documentary. I've been speaking to Catherine on Instagram for ages, trying to get a preview copy. Finally got one. Thank you, Paramount. And yeah, this is a fantastic documentary, which it's not even like a reassessment. It's just telling it like it is the real story of Sinead basically being one of the first people to be cancelled for speaking out about what she believed in. And these were powerful topics that a celebrity and especially a female celebrity it wasn't deemed the thing to be talking about. And these were big things, you know, the Catholic church, pedophilia, abortion rights in Ireland, the war, the treatment of black artists, heavy stuff. Me and Catherine get into all of this. We discuss Sinead's career, her impact, her cancellation, and now hopefully her comeback. So this is me talking to Catherine Ferguson. How's it going? Okay. I'm okay. It's a wee bit nuts. Um, it's been a bit of a one of these past few weeks, but it's um look, no no complaints. It's fantastic. No, you're you're deep into junket promo mode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> First time I feel very much a rookie working out how this all works, but um yeah, it's great. It's great. Did you study film? What was your background like? Um, very good question. Um, no, I actually, uh, what did I do? I actually did fashion. <laughs> I went to um, CSM and did a BA in fashion communication um, way back in God, 2001. And then um, fell into film actually through that. I got very into uh, fashion film really, um, uh, I'd say in like 2005 onwards. And then kind of fell quite quickly out of uh, love with of that and with that and really started to really want to explore um, documentary and what people had to say and actually, you know, try and train uh, as a filmmaker, um, uh, you know, 
but I, I then decided to go back to a master's at the RCA in, um, it was actually another communication course, but I just did film in that course for two years. And it was my graduation film from that course, uh, Mather, which is Irish for Mother, uh, that really started this whole wild process um, that, that led to making this feature. So we can talk a bit about that if you like. And who were you into? What directors were you inspired by? What films were you obsessing over? Oh, interesting. Um, well, I was hugely into. I remember at that point, I remember at the RCA, I was very into my uh, Catholicism and my and, and uh, iconography. At Bellini, Roma <laughs> was 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 a big one. Um, I suppose I loved uh, you know I loved the visual style of a director like Bellini. But then I equally was really inspired as a documentarian. When I saw um, Kyle Bannard's the, the Arbor, yeah, you know, and this idea of, of the hybrid doc uh, being something to explore. And I think um, really it was at that point that my head was turned and I thought, crikey, how could we try and make work that's, you know, definitely um, pushing the boundaries of documentaries slightly more and, um, you know, uh, bringing in um, scripted elements as well. Not that this film has them, but that was definitely something that hugely inspired me um, and it's something I'd like to try for my next film. So. I rewatched recently, have you ever seen Carol Morley's The Alcohol Years? No, I'd love to. No, This is a film where she, yeah, she, she's going back through all her teens and 20-somethings when she definitely had, was drinking really out of control and going back and speaking to all the people she interacted with hooked up wow. with embarrassed herself with throughout that entire time it's really interesting because there is a point when someone says do you really want to hear this do you really want to me to tell you how bad and messy and chaotic you were in that time and then also wow. flipping it and saying is this like a vanity piece is this just some mm. psychotic kind of egomaniac trip mm -hmm. of you making a movie about mm -hmm. yourself and listening to everyone talk about you for you know, 15 hours of tape time. It's like the, it's like the world's worst hangover ever. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is like that. I remember someone asked me a weird question about if you found two books of like all the nice things someone says about you and all the bad things, which one would you go to? And I was like, oh, the, the good one, definitely. I, I don't think I could handle just being torn apart and be told how you know an annoying i am or something that would just be oh christ absolutely good god um no i'd love to see that i haven't actually seen it but yeah she's amazing as well yeah i mean yeah brilliant was there a did you have a eureka moment or a moment where you thought okay i want to make a documentary about sinead was there a definitive moment you, know, you can pinpoint yeah and it was <laughs> when i was an early teenager honestly um i'd say the um Seeds for this film were really sowed um, in the early 90s when I was a young teenager growing up in Belfast. I'd actually been introduced to The Man and the Cobra, her first album, by my dad in Belfast in the 80s when I was a child. And it became, bizarrely, the soundtrack to my childhood. He would play it on repeat as we drove through rainy, troubles-ridden Northern Ireland. So it became this very visceral experience, uh, you know, listening to her music. But it was when I became a teenager uh, myself in the early 90s and, um, you know, discovered her second album. And I think by that point, like, I could really see her and hear her. And me and my friends just obviously thought she was the best thing we'd ever seen. And as young Irish women, we certainly needed her. 
So, um, yeah, she was a huge icon of ours. But then very quickly after I feel like we found her, she was completely uh, destroyed on this global stage. So it was a very demoralizing thing to kind of um, go through, you know, to find this like icon of yours when you're a teenager. And then just witness that was, you know, it really left a huge dent on me. And I think then that was a story that just stuck with me for decades. Um, you know, I've always remained a fan of hers and her music um, and always, you know, was very interested in what she was up to. But I really think, yeah, the origins for this film began then. Um, and then, yeah, it wasn't until 2011 when I was at the RCI doing this Masters that I um, made this film, as I mentioned, Maffer. And I reached out to, literally this film's strange experimental visual number, um, short film, um, all about you know, similar themes that are in the film, Catholicism and its control over women of Ireland. And I reached out to her then managers and asked if I could get access to her stems because I wanted to see if I could deconstruct them and turn them into a score for this short. And I was, you know, very happy that they agreed. And I then sent them this uh, graduation piece and um, just to show them what I'd done um, out of uh, uh, courtesy. And then they came back about a year and a half later and asked me to direct her first music video in 15 years for her track, Force and Vine. So that's when I got to meet her. And that was 2013. So it was this bizarrely organic process that kind of began way back when and then really started to, you know, um, gain some traction. Um, at, yeah, 20, 2013. And then, you know, by meeting her, of course, the, the fires were stoked even further. I was like, you know, by that point I was making films and I was edging into documentary work. And um, yeah, I just thought, good God, why hasn't there been like a cinematic feature doc made about this incredible person and, you know, talk to anyone that would listen and you know, bear me going on about it for the following five years. And then it wasn't until early 2018 I met the film co-writers um, and producers uh, Michael Malley and Elmer Entwidge and they just really shared the same passion and vision for the project and I finally had people to, to hear me out and you know together we just sat down and really worked out the angle and put a one-pager together which I then brought back to the team that I'd worked with in the music video and that's really how it all started. Wow because I'm always so fascinated by documentary filmmakers especially for the time and endurance and patience and back and forth that it takes to make a documentary a few years ago there was a film student who told me he wants to make a 10 minute short documentary about my movie night and I was like really no you don't want to do that it's going to take so long it's going to be so expensive and there's going to be interviews and you're going to have to I know what you know I kind of watch some documentaries i know how you assemble them and you're going to need clips and footage to pad out the voices and you know there's talking heads and i was like you don't want to do that you don't you don't want to waste time on me <laughs> and i was like i just talked to him I, well he did do it but you know he he, he wasn't unwavered but like my friend jeff who made the amazing devil and daniel johnson documentary oh yeah um, like 10 years 10 years going through archive yeah. footage and mm -hmm. the labels and filmmakers and producers just saying this is just a crazy guy making music on a out of tune guitar on a tape deck there's no long before now he's you know he's adored and he's a diy icon but 
Absolutely. I think all of it, like really, any documentary is a huge passion project, you know, and ours was the same. I think ours bizarrely only took four years. We were prepared for it to take longer, but, um, you know, uh, but going into it, obviously we had no backers. I had to convince people that I was the right director to make this film, mm -hmm. you know, given that I hadn't made a feature before, you know, there was all that to contend with. Um, but bizarrely, once we got moving, things move quite fast, which I just, yeah, we weren't expecting them to. Um, and to be honest, we could have nearly even got it finished in three years, but uh, COVID happened and <laughs> put a stop to that. But um, but we had to, you know, fund it from the ground up as well. And we just, you know, had to do all of the, all of the things that uh, documentarians have to do, you know, um, all of the applications to the national funds and um, pitching at uh, documentary festivals and all of that stuff we did. But like, it was worth it, you know, we managed to keep the film very independent, you know, which is, you know, exactly what we really hoped we could do and, and needed to do, to be honest, given the story and the artists that we were exploring. So um, it worked out well, thank God. And how did you decide to frame it within that? Is it a four year period? Five, five, five years, yeah, um, 1987 to 93. Well, to be honest, from the very beginning, we'd always planned to keep it um, very, very focused because, you know, even starting any type of dive into Sinead O'Connor and her life and her story, there's so much there. So to be able to tell a film, like to be able to properly do a deep dive and tell a film with any type of, um, you know, context and, uh, you know, rigorous, um, you know, analysis, you know, you have, we had to go very, very tight on our focus. Um, really, Sinead deserves 10 documentaries and I yeah. hope that they'll all be made about her after this one. But to be able to, I mean, I suppose this film in many ways is like a foundation that's being laid. It's trying to like really just go back to the start and look at the cause and effect of what happened and why she did what she did. Because I think there's so much out there that people just don't understand about any of it, you know, and we wanted to be able to try and um, clear up a lot of the, uh, you know, the ideas that um, a lot of them had obviously been um, constructed very well by the press, so, but we wanted to try and, you know, unpeel all of these um, preconceptions about her and really be able to look at depth into one, the Ireland that she came from, which is critical to the story, you know, mm -hmm. looking at how she, you know, her rise to fame, which is so fascinating because, um, you know, her sense of um, self and standing up for what she believes in certainly didn't start whenever she was a global superstar. It was there from the very, very beginning, you know, from when she was a teenager and, you know, she's a lot of battles she has to fight even to get to this uh, point that she gets to. But then most importantly, you know, we wanted to look at how she used her voice and she was this global superstar. And then the unbelievable backlash, which is really shocking, I think, even to today's audiences when they see the film. There's like audible gasps in the audience when you get to that part of the of the film because um it's astounding to see this young 24-year-old woman being absolutely torn to shreds, um, you know, in the way that she is. So yeah. I don't think I answered your question very well, but really no, it was did, yeah. to, to deep dive into this part of the story, we needed to keep us uh, tightly focused. 
yeah, I remember when I saw her in the nineties, I didn't get it at all. I was, no. I had, well, I had Irish parents and I was always, I was in that shitty teenage years where I rejected anything Irish. I thought she was just a weird person with a shaven head on the late, late show. <laughs> and then obviously as you get older, you're looking back and I remember David Holmes mm. put on his Facebook that he went to Shane McGowan's 60th birthday and he said the you're the one performance is the best thing he's ever seen. Yeah. And I watched that and I was like, this is incredible. Yeah. And it was such a cinematic moment because she walks on stage to a place that's so silent. And I think there is that air of, is she going to fuck this up? Is she going to say mm-hmm. something crazy? Is Where is this going to go? And the second she starts singing, the whole place is like, she still got it. That's and it was such an amazing name. moment. And then when I started going back and then I went on like a Google dive looking for her photos and I was like, this face is amazing. This is the most mm-hmm. incredible face and all her photo shoots. And I think Peaches in the documentary says it better when she's like, she's basically 30 years ahead of her time in her fashion and what she's embracing, the kind of the masculine, feminine, the punk looks, the leather jackets. That, that amazing photo shoot where she's pregnant and she's wearing, she's nine months pregnant and she's wearing a t-shirt that just says, wear a fucking condom. So great. So ahead of a time. But what is it they say? It's um, it's not always great to be the first at something. Well, this is it. And I think it was a very um, isolated place to be, actually. Um, you know, I think particularly with her, you know, speaking out in her activism, you know, she wasn't talking about palatable, cool subjects. It was really hard to hear, hard hitting um, things that she felt very passionate about, which obviously accumulates in, you know, with with the iconic uh, Saturday Night Live performance where she um, rips up a picture of the Pope and, call, and, you know, and all hell breaks loose as a result. You know, this was not stuff, it's not like today where I suppose you know, we expect a lot of our celebrities and expect them in many ways to speak out and use the platform, you know, really at that point. Um, she was one of the few, especially as a female superstar, to really, you know, stand up there and put her head above the parapet. Um, but it was not a welcome, it was not a welcome uh, voice, you know. People really, really didn't want to hear it, particularly around the sexual abuse scandals in the church. Uh, it was just really too early. Um, and I just don't think people, it wasn't out in the consciousness enough for people to really, as you say, know what she was talking about or yeah. know what that action was about. So I think it left people quite confused. Um, which then, of course, you know, people are able to look back on now with a much clearer perspective of, of why she did what she did. But at that point, I think it left people very confused. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, you mentioned that the David Holmes thing as well. He, I think, has just uh, produced her new album. And I think it was based on that meeting. Oh, amazing. That night is meant to be unbelievably good. When I was on my YouTube deep dive, when I rediscovered Sinead, 
I saw the interview of her and Arsenio Hall on his talk show. Oh, yeah. And it's like a classic 90s American talk show. But Sinead doesn't really do light talk show chats, does she? She's completely (laughs) outspoken. And I think three minutes in, she's already spoken about apartheid and why... She's not attending the Grammys because your success isn't me- shouldn't be measured by your oh, yeah. record sales. She's talking about the war. She's talking about how brutal and horrible humans can be to one another. Yeah. Just not the typical talk show chat. And then I no. was reading the comments and everyone's like, wow, look at this woman. She's so brilliant. She's so outspoken. And she's still only 24. Yeah. It's just amazing looking back as to how strong her moral compass was and she would not bend. She would not pander. She won't do light TV chat. She's not going to drop an anecdote or a funny story, whatever. She's If she's got the platform, she's going to be speaking about what is important. It is incredible, but I think the key thing, you know, you know, that I can say from just looking through all of, you know, hours and hours of the archive and spending so much time with this story. Sinead was a counterculture artist who yeah. really was, anti, you know, nonconformist, anti-establishment, very punk, actually, in her ethos. He then gets, you know, catapulted into this super fame realm. And, yeah. you know, she arrived there and I suppose when you're that famous, which she was for about four or five years, yeah. that famous, I suppose you're expected to be grateful or <laughs> play the game or, you know, at least do what somewhat what do what you're meant to be, you know, what, what's expected of you. And there was just nothing that anybody could do to tell Sinead O'Connor, uh, you know, how to be or what to say or how to act. And I think that's where the real rub comes in because she's yes you know she's coming from this place she's not really meant to be there in this in the world that she lands into and i think that's where it all gets really really messy to be honest uh you know looking back at it because um that certainly isn't you know where she saw herself as an artist it's incredible that she did become so absurdly famous you know um you know, in nineteen ninety, in nineteen ninety, but um, it certainly doesn't seem like it did. Did it any good? No. Well, there's an amazing bit in the Arsenio interview I just watched where he asked her something, and then she just said something like, "Well, you know me, so you know, not sugarcoating things or not telling the truth isn't really my thing." Yeah. And she was like, "I'm known for speaking the truth." So. Yeah. There's no message. <laughs> and one of the things that I had to remind myself when watching it is. This was pre-social media. This sounds so obvious, but yeah, Sinead didn't have an Instagram or a Twitter where she could speak out about what she was fighting for or against. And the only way to get your voice heard was to go on, you know, cheesy talk shows or go on the Late Late Show where Gay Burn was really condescending to her. It's just wild looking back at that time and how little of a voice people had against the mainstream media. 
Well, it really was. And actually, yeah, like Skin says it really clearly in the documentary, as you say, you know, it was, uh, you know, before social media. And in those days, if the press weren't writing about you, if you weren't appearing on talk shows, if you weren't uh, out there and being asked to be part of things, you may as well be dead, <laughs> you know, yeah. or gone because there was no way for people to access you or your music. And that's essentially what happens to Sinead you know it's like this mass cancelling that a very kind of violent mass cancelling that happens um, very fast um, and obviously goes on to huge effects that's right did you do two days long interviews with her yeah we really wanted Sinead to narrate this film you know um, yeah it was it was two days at the end of 2019 just a few months before uh, the first lockdown but really for me um it was just so important to have her narrating. This is somebody who the media have done such a good job on really reducing her voice and I suppose in many ways mocking it. And, uh, you know, I just it felt really important that the key takeaway from this film be that you hear her in an uninterrupted 90 minutes um, film, you know, was really able to like look back and reflect from this contemporary point of view on all of the events that, that took place during these five years. So it was it was amazing to be able to actually get that interview. And she's so, you know, reflective and clear, clear as a bell. And um, yeah, I just thought she had lots of fantastic insights, really. So we were delighted to be able to get that. Um, but, you know, and that's why as well, um, there's no talking heads. We, we, there is, we didn't use an obstock approach at all with this film it's very much meant well it was all uh, woven together as like a tapestry because we wanted to keep you in the era but for you to hear her reflections from today so it was a conscious decision to keep you um in those five years as attention's building and building throughout that you know throughout what happened uh, i want you to wanted you to feel the intensity with her as she's then telling you what happened so um yeah we made a decision not to do any in camera uh, uh, commentary at all um, and just keep it all um, VO and and archive footage really and a little bit that we shot ourselves but mostly archive. How involved was she in the documentary? Well basically um, her involvement was the interview and um, we obviously were working closely uh, with uh, you know her team but really um, apart from the interview because it's archive we, we didn't need to involve Sinead in it much past that at all um so yeah <laughs> that's that's really it yeah how does she feel about the documentary has she seen it we don't know if she's seen it and we certainly haven't wanted to push it on her this year given all that she's going through but we do know that she's very supportive of it oh good and um, she's been she's been posting lots on facebook about it for the last uh well nine months actually um and yes i would hope that uh yeah she's she she's happy with the response there's a hell of a lot of love yeah you know gathering around the world for you know so there's it's certainly um kick-started uh, a lot of that um which hopefully will reach her and she'll feel there's a weird thing with 
artists I know who never watch their own documentaries about themselves. Sure. I wouldn't want to. I think I'm an egomaniac. I'd want to see it and have <laughs> <laughs> demand final cut. Have you watched your 10 minute one? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I'll send you a file. <laughs> I'll send you a Blu-ray right now. <laughs> I'll, get, I'll get my courier around. Warren Ellis came over to screen his Dirty oh. Free documentary, which is incredible. Right. And mm-hmm. we were at the hotel and just about to get in the Uber and he was like, wait, is the documentary any good? And I was like, yeah, it's amazing. And he was like, I've never bothered to watch it. Wow. And then, but it was really emotional because then he watched it that night because he came in and he's about to sit down and I was like, Warren, we've got a seat for you here. And he's like, no, I'm going to go to the back. If it's shit, I'll leave. And he did, okay. but he, he stuck for it. And then one of his bandmates messaged the next day saying, hey, thanks for showing the documentary. I really appreciate it. Is the doc any good? I've not watched it either. And I was like, Oh my any- goodness. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, I can totally understand why you wouldn't want it. <laughs> Maybe it's the same way with actors who can't watch their own films and stuff. Yeah. I know a lot of actors say I, I get a headache watching myself yeah. 20 foot high on a screen, which is probably quite alien, but Absolutely. I can get that. I mean, I find it horrifying enough listen to, listening to myself do things like this so i can only imagine sitting through a whole film would be absolutely horrific um but yeah no i think i think there's a lot of um docs that yeah as you say that have been made and people choose not to watch them and i think fair dues to be honest how did you go about piecing together the footage you've got so much good archive material how was that pulling that all together especially those early rehearsal tapes yeah yeah you know, we, we find some real um, gold nuggets actually and um, quite late in the process. And um, well, because we funded it the way we did, um, just getting little pots from the national funders, um, you know, as we went along, one of the first things that we did was bring in our archive producer, Joe Stones, um, who is quite phenomenal actually. And she just went on a deep dive and I suppose uncovered everything that there is. And bizarrely with Sinead, there's not masses of archive, really? which I find very strange. No, no, there's not. There's um, only a select few concerts, um, a lot of TV Q&As, uh, appearances, um, very little B-roll. No, it was surprising, and I don't really understand. We still never really got to the bottom of it, but there's not masses. But then um, what did happen was when we started to talk to our contributors, and many of them are first-hand eyewitness um, accounts, um, you know, we talked to them and they then sent us off on wild goose tours. <laughs> quite often they say, oh, there's this guy, you know, Mikey, who's got like a box of tapes, I'm sure, in his cupboard somewhere in America. Reach out to him to see if he'll help you out. So we went on all these wild chases to try and uncover, you know, this archive that we hadn't managed to, um, you know, just, yeah, this, I suppose, B-roll of what we were looking for as opposed to the well seen and documented concerts and um and tv shows and yeah i mean that really was when it got really exciting um you know for viewers who have seen it you know we have the um or sorry for listeners who've seen it you know there's the wedding scene which is amazing Sinead o'connor singing as a 14 year old at her music teacher's wedding in dublin um in the early 80s you know the, the videographer sadly didn't 
film her <laughs> because he wouldn't have known quite who was there at that point. But he recorded her singing um, and there's a there's a shot of her walking across the car park and it's very obviously her, you know, as a 14-year-old girl in rainy Ireland, you know, bits like that were phenomenal. And as you mentioned, the rehearsal footage in 1985, Sinead with hair, singing with this band that have been put together to support her, find her voice as she's starting to write The Line of the Cobra. I mean, just little bits like that were just phenomenal. So exciting to find. Um, and um, yeah, there's there's definitely a few, but a lot of that stuff came quite late. So we'd already edited maybe 80% of the film and then these nuggets would arrive and we had to reshuffle everything again to try and squeeze them in. But I'm glad we did. There's an amazing scene of her singing is that a Cole Porter song she's singing with uh oh, in, yeah. in London with the drag queens that's fucking incredible that looks yes, so great it is yes absolutely it's beautiful but that that was Lee Barry's club oh um what's it called Kinky Galinky yes it was his club and um you know because John Mabry uh and it's like John Mabry Jerry Stafford you know they're all good friends with um, Lee Bowery too. So John Mabry is obviously the key, one of the key image makers uh, that worked with Sinead. I think he did 12 of her videos. Uh, all of them are stunning. Um, and Jerry Stafford did like styling and uh, creative direction. Um, so she had this amazing team around her. And um, yeah, so she 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 would have gone to the Lee Bowery night um, a fair bit. And the, yes, that video that you mentioned was her performing at the club. And it's just amazing to feel the love in the room, isn't it? Yeah. It's just so uh, comfortable and talks about having a hundred daddies. Yes. <laughs> you know, in, in, in this amazing um, community. And yeah, I think it's really, really beautiful. That was actually shot by Dick Joe, the incredible artist. So he he shot all of the Kinky Girlinky nights um, and he shot that on five cameras. Wow. <laughs> Must have been 1990 or 1991. Um, so yeah, and he'd actually been a tutor of mine at the RCA. And I'd remembered that he'd shot footage, a lot of, I mean, he's famous for footage of that era. So it was, yeah, that was a fantastic goose chase. <laughs> and I just emailed, I was like, Dick, what have you got? And he had to go through his incredible archive, which is infam infamously uh, dense. And he, he managed to hoik that out and we were able to digitize it. Stunning. Yeah, that's such great footage. And again, the look is incredible. Isn't it just like a coat, a bra, but then a tinny and a cigarette? Oh, yeah. It's a kind of red, a red stripe. Yeah. Yeah. And a flag. Yeah. But with the most perfect vocal and rendition ever. Yeah. Just the whole combination is just kind of what makes us so great. Yeah. You do something to me, isn't it? You got an amazing section where you break down the nothing compares to you video. And, and at the end of a, spoilers, at the end of a film you mentioned, the Prince Estate refused to grant permission. Yeah. You, you you made such a great scene and a great sequence for the video without using the audio track. How did you overcome that obstacle? Yeah, I mean, it was certainly um, a late-in-the-day obstacle. But anyway, um, yeah, we had reached out and um, sadly were denied the license to the song. So we had quite the creative challenge and how to keep the you know, the, 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 the narrative flow of that scene, which is essentially, you know, because so many of the um, 
videos that we have used in the in our film are uh, kind of reworked as biographical beats. Um, like Troy talks about the horrific um, childhood that she had, and then nothing compares to you was to revisit, um, I suppose, the loss of her mother and and the pain that she felt um, because of that. Um, you know, and she's always very openly talked about the tear. Uh, you know that is so infamous now from nothing compared to you from the video is when you know is is, is when she thinks about her mother and um, that's that that that's when, when she was thinking I can't speak when she was shooting that um video uh she thought about her mother and that's what caused the tear and you know we wanted to explore that a bit further um with her because really um if Troy earlier on in the film is about the anger she felt about what happened to her nothing compares to you is about the sadness mm -hmm. she she feels about the loss of her mother and that relationship um so you can bet your boots we weren't not going to include it we were you know it was key of a key moment key um part of the film really so yeah we just had this creative challenge to work out how we could keep all of that intact and um you know we worked with uh, the film's composers the Buckley sisters and John Reynolds um and we had to together try and put a track together that, you know, would be a good homage to the song and keep you there without um, using even a, a second of it. <laughs> so um, it was certainly a challenge. Um, but what's been really interesting um, since the film's come out is that so many people that have seen it have said that even just by watching that video, you know, seeing that because we had the rushes for the film, which was, you know, for Nothing Compares to You, which is amazing to have. They said just from even watching her in the video, they could hear the song. Yeah. Even if you don't I felt hear, that completely. It's that iconic. Yeah. Yeah. It's there and you, and you can hear it. And that was a huge relief to hear, um, given that we weren't able to actually include it. Uh, yeah. All, all the outtakes and unused footage was amazing because that, that, that whole video is like a, masterclass in close-up and the human face it's incredible oh yeah yeah and that's john john avery again and he talks about it really beautifully being that it wasn't his direction it wasn't the cinematography it was all her and you really can see that and feel that can't you when you see that scene. yeah the connection just, through the lens the is just incredible it's phenomenal she should have acted more i know i know i i, I always go on on this podcast about people you know actors faces and how there's a certain type of face I don't mm. see in cinema anymore. Like I want more people looking like Sissy Spacek or Shelley Duvall or kind of really interesting Warren nice. Oates or Harry Dean Stanton. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is a face for the movies right here. Mm -hmm. She needs to, she could be an amazing character actor. I know. And obviously she'd be a natural. You can just tell she'd yeah. totally bring it every time. She did. She did do bits. She did. She played Emily Bronte in one of the uh, Wuthering Heights films. I can't remember which must have been the Juliette Binoche one. There's a flash of her running up a hill dressed as Emily Bronte. And then there's, and then obviously in our film, we talk about Hush by Baby, which was, you know, this um, quite iconic uh, feminist uh, feature that came out in Ireland in the late 80s, all about abortion. So she, she had a key part in that and did the soundtrack for it. Could you pick out what was your biggest challenge in the movie? What was your biggest, what was your hardest scene to cut together or? I mean, there were so many challenges, to be honest. Um, I think just even getting us up and running is probably 
the biggest and then COVID was a huge worry because we were two years into the project at that point and you know the archive houses you know given that it was such a archive heavy film the archive houses literally shut their doors um, for probably six seven months you couldn't even like nobody could get in them never mind get anything out of them um even files you know so that was certainly a challenge um you know the issues around licensing was a challenge um but i suppose the key thing for me was just making sure that we were able to tell the version of the story that I really wanted to tell. So it was constantly trying to make sure that we could stay independent and keep on track with um, making sure that, you know, this film, uh, you know, the, 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 the final version uh, was exactly as I intended. Um, but I really feel like it is, which is a relief because I'm sure that doesn't happen all the time, you know. I think we were very lucky that we were able to stay indie the whole way through it. Absolutely. Yeah. You can totally, it's kind of funny when you see music documentaries and then you're like, well, the estate was involved. So it was a very sanitized version or something, but this was completely. Yeah. I just feel like it's, um, yeah, I think um, it certainly is raw. Uh, And what's just been fascinating, you know, obviously launched, um, was it now nine months ago at Sundance? It's been really interesting to watch how it's being received because certainly when we made it, you know, there's a good <laughs> dose of my own fury as an Irish woman, which I'm sure is palpable when, when you watch it. But, um, uh, but you know, what's been fascinating is screening, you know, it really has screened around the world now, but it's having, I just keep getting all of these amazing, flashing-eyed teenagers coming up to me at the end of it, just being like, what? <laughs> what? you know who was she and what what like they just can't believe yeah that they didn't actually know who she was they'd heard about her of course because she's still known for that song but they had also had been told either by their parents or by the media that she was bad or she'd done something bad and when they see this film which hopefully is a reclamation um, I think they are very perturbed and um, but also very galvanized and um, particularly in America, you know, all of these young ones, you know, dealing with what they're having to contend with over there at the minute. Um, it seems to have almost become a bit of a call to action. <laughs> There's a lot of um, very uh, angry young ones coming up saying, you know, they also feel that, you know, feeling like they're hugely inspired by her. And, you know, want to also, you know, use their voices and go out and, um, yeah, just um, speak truth to power and all of those cliches. But it's true, you know, they want to be able to use their voices properly and um, and to be heard. Absolutely. And, my God, we need yeah. thousands of Sinead's out in the world right now <laughs> doing that. That's a perfect note to end on. Congratulations again on the documentary look it's lovely to talk to you you too thanks a million boom that was me and Catherine, I'm really excited as to the impact 
this doc might have. And it's one of those ones where you think you know the story, but you don't. Okay, that's it. Thank you for listening. Thank you to my producer, Flynn Rodham, Joshua Eustace, a.k.a. Telephone Tel Aviv for the beautiful music. And you guys for listening. We'll speak soon.